If you're outside right now, somewhere near a street, pause for a moment and take a look around. Notice the street signs, people walking, the cars passing by. Now, for a moment, imagine nothing is as it looks now. Instead, the street signs are, let's say, a drab gray. And everyone that you see is wearing only neon lime green. The tires on the cars, they're kind of soft, milky white. The, all of this, the gray street signs, the lime-clad pedestrians, it's all basically just a fun thought experiment. Except for the milky tires. Because it turns out that this is actually what they look like and did look like until the early 20th century. Because this is the color of rubber before it's painted and deliberately coated in pounds and pounds of what's called carbon black. There's a moment in everyone's life when they realize that every single thing around them has been designed in some way. You know, every light switch, every cable, every, everything that seems trivial has been designed in some way. And you realize that color is a, is a very, very deliberate part of our everyday living experience, whether we know it or not, whether we appreciate it or not. But when you understand that, suddenly you look at things in a very, very different way. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a daily celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're heading to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we'll hear from the keeper of the Forbes Pigment Collection, a repository of over 2,700 pigments. They've been painstakingly, sometimes disgustingly, produced to be used in art, clothes, buildings, even globbed onto car tires, quietly coloring the world around us since the beginning of human history. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you're in Narayan Kandakar's line of work, what's your favorite color? Is a loaded question. So, I mean, if if I work with every color each day, why why would I choose a favorite? I've got access to every one of them, 
and I don't need to I don't need to favor one over another. So I'm I'm very even-handed in how I approach it. He heads up the Center for Conservation and Research at Harvard's Art Museums. My job is to oversee the care of the collections, make sure that objects are properly restored, conserved, treated, cared for. So we want to understand the materials and techniques of the artist, which tells us about how it's made and how it will change over time and how to care for it best. Think of it all as a kind of like medical research for the fine arts. The museums have laboratories staffed by chemists like Narayan who are dedicated to understanding the anatomy of artwork. It means they can ID unidentified paintings or treat works of art when they begin to break down due to age. And a critical part of this center lives on the fourth floor of the museum behind a wall of glass in a thousand tiny color-filled jars. It's called the Forbes Pigment Collection. Yeah, so a pigment is a small colored particle and it is typically very small. Modern pigments are around one micron in size. A really fine grain of sand is about 60 or 70 microns across. But if you take these teeny tiny particles and combine them with some kind of binding medium, you get paint. And this is where Edward Waldo Forbes, grandson of poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, comes into the picture. Around 1900, Edward was on a trip to Italy and picked up a casual souvenir, the 14th century painting, Madonna and Child with Saints. But he noticed that it actually hadn't held up that well over time. And as he bought more and more art, he wanted to figure out how to maintain and restore the pieces and and to do it the right way, not just to glob on some paint that wasn't used in the original. So determined to be a better custodian of his growing art collection, Edward started gathering pigments from all around the world. And what began as one became hundreds, then thousands. And today, the Forbes collection serves as this kind of living rainbow repository of all of the stuff that has ever historically been used to create the human-made colors all around us. Pigments are very old and have been around for a long time. Think about cave paintings made by people living tens of thousands of years ago. And not only were they recording these images, they could have done it just with... um, just with charcoal, they could have done it in black and whatever the background color is, but they actually chose colors. And when I was doing some research about Australian Aboriginal painters, what I found is that people would transfer ochres over hundreds of miles by foot. These pigments have specific meanings, and I know that the pigments were used for certain ceremonial purposes, and so they were traded and moved around. And so we know that people would, were doing that very early on. These pigments have meanings, and people have long gone out of their way to get them for spiritual practice, art, and in certain cases, utility. Take Vantablack, considered the deepest black pigment. It creates a flattening effect, kind of like a hole. Vantablack is a a physical thing that 
creates a lack of color. It's like a forest of nanotubes. And what happens is that light goes into those nanotubes, it bounces around, it gets absorbed. And then the energy from the light gets emitted as heat. Vanta Black is actually now part of the Forbes collection. But since it was originally created for the defense industry, it's been pretty mysterious and inaccessible. So when Anish Kapoor, the artist famous for sculpting Chicago's bean, worked out a deal to buy exclusive rights to Vanta Black from its manufacturer, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And so there's an artist in the UK called Stuart Sample, and he produced the pinkest pink and said that everybody had access to this pigment except Anish Kapoor. And of course, Anish Kapoor got a sample of it and dipped his middle finger in it and then sent a message to Stuart Sample. It is incredibly petty for, you know, for artists of their stature, but, you know, it shows how passionate people are about color. Vanta Black has been shaped by its mystery and public controversy. But some of the older pigments in the collection, their meanings are kind of interwoven with the way by which the pigment was physically produced. Their material history kind of gave them meaning. Take, for example, ultramarine. Natural ultramarine comes from lapis lazuli, a gem found in the mountains of Afghanistan. The pigment, like the gem, is this ridiculously rich, deep blue. It's absolutely stunning. But getting this gemstone required a steep and treacherous hike into the mountains, and then a crawl into the depths of a mine and back. It became a prized possession in Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, and beyond. And when hundreds of years later, European traders got their hands on it, they started selling it for more than the cost of gold. A synthetic version of the color is now available. And in fact, you might recognize it because it's added to a lot of laundry detergents. So it's a, a material that had, a, for a long time, an enormous amount of prestige, and now it's, it's become an historical footnote. But while some pigments' early histories have faded with the laundry, others have endured for over thousands of years. Tyrian purple. An old myth has it that Tyrian purple was discovered when Hercules was out walking his dogs. One of his dogs bit into this spiny snail, and legend has it that the snail ooze turned the dog's nose purple. It's a nice story, but it probably couldn't have happened because it takes uh, a lot of these snails, murex mollusks, to get any considerable purple, like a lot, a lot. You need over 10,000 murex mollusks. For a gram of it. A gram, 10,000 snails for less than a quarter of a teaspoon of purple. It is labor-intensive, and um, you have to spend a lot of time crunching up mollusks and boiling. And, you know, it's not just unpleasant. It's incredibly stinky as well. It's a job that I'm glad I don't have to do. And I'm, I'm sure somebody's made a TV show about it, you know, that, like the, the most unpleasant jobs on the planet. And that, that would rank up there. We checked. They have. The very worst job of all is an incredibly disgusting and very ancient one, and one that underlies the very symbol of royalty itself. The Purple Maker. Because the Purple Maker's job was so labor-intensive and unpleasant and egregiously stinky, 
purple became this color that was reserved for royalty in a lot of ancient societies. So Roman senators had Tyrian purple on their togas. Cleopatra, obsessed with it. Julius Caesar, obsessed with Cleopatra. So he apparently banned everyone from wearing it, except, of course, himself. So it is difficult to produce and as a consequence has an enormous amount of prestige. It was the only purple for a very, very long time. This kind of color coding, this visible stratification, the the color coding of societies based on power and wealth, all linked to just how difficult it is to crush and ferment snails, lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think I, I am not 100% sure that my feelings are right, but I feel like there's a lot of pent-up desire to have purple. And so in the 19th century, when a cheap version came, the prestige of purples was still attached to it. So people, the color of the late Victorian era is very purple. And so there's a lot of purple that's used in decorations. And I think that it's connected with the cheap availability of something that was very, very restricted prior to that, that time. So some pigments in the collection became well-known because of their hard-to-produce nature, their prestige. And others, for a long time, were known because they were couched in mystery. No one knew exactly how they were made. The source of Indian yellow has been hotly debated. And for a long time, it hung in the balance of the 19th century observations of T.N. Mukherjee, a writer and museum curator based in Calcutta. He reported that people would feed cows mango leaves, collect their urine, dry it, and then use that as a pigment. It would get purified and then used as a pigment. A few years ago, researchers dug into some of the pigment samples and actually found there were traces of hippiric acid in there, which is also found in cow urine. Other pigments, like emerald green, are actually pretty dangerous. Emerald green is a toxic pigment. It's, it's based on arsenic. I mean, there's a, a story that one of the houses where Napoleon was exiled to um, was filled with emerald green painted wallpaper. And people speculated, and I, I stress speculated, that it was a way of slowly poisoning Napoleon so that the, um, the humid sea air would cause the pigment to volatilize and that he would ingest it and then he would die more quickly. But it's an incredibly beautiful green. This collection isn't really just a collection of tiny particles that make the rainbow. It's an archive of these microns of history, these stories of people, spiny snails and peeing cows, the immense labor and exploitation and resources and smells that have all been a part of this journey of how humans depict the world, document it, and shape it through color. You know, people are often surprised and shocked at where the stuff that they use comes from. And what we're able to do with the Forbes Pigment Collection is use the precursors for the pigments as a way of indicating to our students where these things come from. It's like when little kids discover that, that milk doesn't come out of a carton. 
you know, there's a there's a whole world behind something that they've they've taken for granted. So kids, if you're listening, your milk doesn't just come from a carton. It also comes from a cow. Just like yellow used to. Thank you so much to Narayan Kandekar for taking the time to talk to us today. This collection has been closed during the pandemic, and it isn't yet reopened. So until then, you can visit the Harvard Art Museum's website, linked in the show notes, to take a tour of the collection. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Abby Peralt. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Chinanya Onike, Maddie Weinberg, Camille Mojica, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Manolo Morales and mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll talk to you soon. Witness Docs from Stitcher. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.